Hello and you're welcome to the third of our Your Politics special podcast to mark the anniversary, the 25th anniversary of the Good Friday Agreement this April. We've already had two in this series on the critical role that women played in bringing about peace and also on those who were reporting what was going on in the run-up through the Troubles and into the peace process. And today, I'm delighted to be joined by two people who were critical in the behind-the-scenes diplomacy that secured that deal in 1998. And they are Trina Vargo, who's president of the US-Ireland Alliance, which she founded in 1998. And before that, in the run-up to the peace agreement, she was working for the late Senator Edward Kennedy during those critical years of the developing peace process. Trina Vargo, we're really, really glad you can talk to us. And we're also joined by former Ambassador David Donoghue, who's one of the key Irish government negotiators for the Good Friday Agreement. And Trina Vargo, I want to start with you because I was looking at an interview you gave about how you got involved in in all of this and you said Ireland was dumped on me. So tell me how (laughs) Ireland ended up being such a big part of your life then and now. Yes, it was um, it was the early 1990s and a lot was not seen to be going on on the issue. I was one of Senator Kennedy's um, advisors, along with somebody who else you will know from this process, Nancy Soderberg. And Nancy had been there longer than I had been, and she had been dealing with the Northern Ireland issue and the Irish issues. And at, when I came in as the junior person, I was just told, you're doing Ireland now. I'm, I, I've had enough of it. And so it just was uh, great luck for me that um, things really started to develop in terms of the U.S. end of things with um, the the election of Bill Clinton. In fact, Nancy went from Senator Kennedy's office to go work on the Bill Clinton campaign. And then we ended up working together, her in the White House and me with Senator Kennedy. But yeah, it was it was it was put upon me at a time when we didn't think much was happening. And that's kind of your personal background. And before we talk about the peace process itself, David Dunhu, I was struck again your own personal story because your father had grown up in Warren Point in Northern Ireland, but it was a place he left and he didn't call it home. And in fact, he remained, your late father, unpersuaded by you, did he, about the benefits, the merits of the Good Friday Agreement? Um. For a few years, Anya, um, first of all, it's a great pleasure to be to be with you today and with Trina. Thank you very much. For a few years, my father was sceptical about the Good Friday Agreement, but then he appeared to come round to it, uh, as it were, late in life. And that was, uh, that was touching and uh, important for me because we uh, had had a lengthy dialogue over about 40 years about Northern Ireland. Um, and uh, in a book I wrote a few months ago, um, uh, I described really his keen interest in everything to do with the North, as he always called it. And uh, so, in a way, it was uh, it was valuable for me that he finally did recognise that the Good Friday Agreement was the right way forward. I'm glad you had that moment together. And Trina Vargo, you've also spoken about how you know the run up to 1998 that it was this amazing, perfect storm when all the right people were in the right places at the right time and the IRA were ready to end it. Tell me more about that take you had on that. Well, it really started in, um, like I said, when when President Clinton was elected. And there had been a few Irish Americans who up until that time had been regularly trying to get a visa for Jerry Adams or, or convince um, 
the administration that there should be a, a visa for Jerry Adams. So what happened in succession was 1992 is the election. 1993, Bill Clinton becomes president. In early 1993, he names Jean Kennedy Smith to be his ambassador to Ireland. Um, she goes to Ireland right around the time that you, you, you all recall Mary Robinson shook Jerry Adams' hand on the Falls Road in the summer of 93. At that moment, Neil O'Dowd, who was the editor of Irish newspapers and magazines and had a connection into Jerry Adams, came to me and suggested that the IRA was prepared to end the violence, that some work would have to be done to get them there, almost like I don't know if face saving would be the right word, but to bring them along, what was necessary was to have Jerry Adams, who was not permitted to come to the United States, visit the U.S. and um, that that could help move along the peace process as he would have to bring along people in the U.S. who had been supporters of the IRA. So we spent a lot of 1993 very quietly trying to follow whether or not there, there was something real here. And there were setbacks. I remember in October 1993, there was the bombing of um, the, the fish shop in Belfast. And then there was a lot of tit-for-tat killings and um, things were not going in, in a great direction. And we were suspicious. Senator Kennedy was suspicious. You know, is this for real? And then you had the, um, the Downing Street Agreement between Albert Reynolds and John Major in um, December. And at that moment, Senator Kennedy decided to go visit his sister on a private visit to Ireland. She was the ambassador uh, in the Phoenix Park. And he went over the Christmas, New Year's Eve period. And Jean was very instrumental in this. I'm not sure that she gets sufficient attention for her role in advocating for a visa for Adams at that time. So Senator, um, Senator Kennedy came back from that trip being more inclined to... Uh, arguing for a visa because we had to convince uh, President Clinton at that time. He had already denied one visa to Jerry Adams and Kennedy came back leaning that way, but he hadn't spoken to John Hume and he wanted to do that. And then unfortunately, in the beginning of January, Tip O'Neill, the former Speaker of the House, um, died and both John and Senator Kennedy went to Boston for his funeral and they had an opportunity to speak then. And mm. John clearly had given the Senator sort of a green light, if you will, to make the argument for the for the visa. And Senator Kennedy, we spent the month of January um, sort of lining up the arguments to um, try to convince President Clinton that he should give Jerry Adams a visa for 48 hours. And that Adams visa and later the Joe Cahill visa, they were critical, as we've learned since, and particularly uh, persuading Republicans of the bona fides, if you like, of, of the American influence in all of this. But David Dunhue, as well as that, you'd been involved, of course, since the Anglo-Irish Agreement. And I mean, you'd been involved in all that. You'd worked the Secretariat, which was a dangerous and very often difficult job. You'd worked through, you'd seen all the initiatives that had come and gone and failed. What made, from your point of view, 98 work in a way that previous initiatives didn't? Um, well, Audrey, could I first of all agree with what Trina said there about Jean Kennedy Smith? I think that her role in relation to the Adams visa and many other aspects of the peace process at the time hasn't been sufficiently recognised, and I strongly agree with Trina on that. As to what made uh, 97, 98 different, Audrey, I think the key thing was that uh, a number of factors came together which inspired confidence uh, in the summer of 97. So you first of all had the um, election of 
a British Prime Minister with a very solid majority, namely Tony Blair. You had the election of Bertie Ahern, uh, also with a pretty comfortable majority uh, in, in Ireland. And you also uh, had a uh, remarkably uh, uh, well-informed well and, and important uh, third uh, player, namely Bill Clinton. So you, you had really factors which inspired confidence, uh, especially in the Republican movement and indeed uh, uh, among loyalist uh, uh, groups. So since we were trying to get uh, inclusive talks, in other words, all party talks underway uh, on the basis of an absolute commitment to peace, uh, all around, it was vital to have mm -hmm. those uh, those factors in, in effect the alignment of the stars as of the summer of ninety seven. Uh, there was a lot of preparatory work done before that, but really we only really got going once the IRA ceasefire uh, uh, had been restored and there was confidence all around for, to, to have the inclusive talks we needed. Yeah. And Trina Vargo, what made Bill Clinton actually want to get involved in Ireland to the extent that he did? I mean, what was in it for him? Well, I think in the beginning, he, he was reluctant. He, 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 he wasn't certain that this was a path to take. But I think once, once he did get in, he, he was sort of all in. And I think one of the things that was very key is when he visited Northern Ireland in 1995, uh, I think it was 1995, and the reception that he received there, I remember he called Senator Kennedy and said it was, you know, the best days of his presidency. So I think once he committed himself and basically what we saw was an opportunity in the U.S. and very little downside in the sense that I know a lot of people talk about those who take risks for peace. And certainly people on that island took risks for peace. We in the U.S., in the comfort of the U.S., none of us really took a risk for peace. The worst that could happen would have been you know, some negative political blowback if if things hadn't worked out. But people were dying in Northern Ireland. And so in working with Senator Kennedy, and then I think, you know, I would assume Bill Clinton came to the same conclusion. There was a there was a big opportunity here to help achieve peace. And there was very little downside. And as I said, once he was in, he was he was fully in. And um, I think that trip in 95 made a big difference in terms of keeping him in. He, he was not going to give up on this process, even when we had setbacks along the way, like, like the end of the first ceasefire. And were there moments, you know, before we start talking about April 1998, were there moments along the way, David Donoghue, where you despaired, where you thought this is going to run into the sand again? There were indeed, Anya. I mean, it, it must be said that, you know, beginning from uh, June 96, which was the formal beginning of, of the of the. Uh, the, the, the talks that ultimately led to, to Good Friday. Beginning then, there were many times when we seemed to be bogged down in uh, procedure and or in the decommissioning issue. And frankly, in that first year and a half or so, there were many times and I and my colleagues were frustrated and almost uh, despairing because it, it seemed as if we couldn't get past this sort of stranglehold which this decommissioning issue had over the entire process. Now, it wasn't helped by the fact that the British government of the day, although courageous in many respects, was dependent on unionist votes. So it meant that uh, uh, the, the, this issue dominated everything else and made it impossible to get to actual substantive talks. We finally found a way through that. Uh, but I think it would be fair to say that only really in about the last month before Good Friday did any of us feel confident that we might get there? 
And talk to me about that night then, that Thursday night into Friday morning, a night you've written about none of you involved will ever forget. Actually, do you know what struck me when I was reading your book? Um, because I was out in the car park outside where we ran out of, you know, everything, coffee, tea, food, loo paper. It was, those loos were disgusting. Uh, but, but it was kind of the same inside in Castle Buildings, was it? It, it was more than the same on you. And I think I remember you being there, actually. Uh, it, those are terrible conditions for journalists to have to work in. But in, inside, it was no better. Uh, there were no facilities, really. Uh, and there was this sort of slightly concentration camp uh, uh, dimension to it where, you know, we were in these uh, uh, corridors which all looked the same. We... we uh, we were all exhausted. We we didn't have anything to to, to eat or drink. We were, uh, um, you know, we were all paying a price really for several nights of having been uh, um, up the whole time. So um, it it really was uh, the worst kind of building you could imagine as a negotiating centre. So really, uh, no, not really any better inside than outside. But there was a critical intervention that night at a critical point, Rina Vargo, from President Clinton, just when they were getting to the, the exhausted stage, that kind of four in the morning stage. Uh, President Clinton made a number of key phone calls to the parties involved. So it was this, you know, the squalor of castle buildings and the glamour of the White House bringing it yeah, over I, the line. I think a lot of people... Um you know, President Clinton was very involved in the final hours um, by many accounts of constant phone calls. And I think with it, from the U.S. perspective, there was, as, as David mentioned a second ago, it wasn't up until that last month. I mean, there was a lot of concern that things would go awry. And you may recall there, were, there was still a lot of violence going on and there would be um, the IRA in the talks, out of the talks, paused for a time. The Loyalist paramilitaries in, out. Senator Kennedy went over in January 1998, his first ever visit to Northern Ireland, which would surprise a lot of people. But he went over in early 98 when Mo Molum, another sort of unsung hero or not sufficiently um, noted hero in the whole process, was going into the Mays prison. So, and, and at that stage, there was, I remember that it's funny how much things remain the same. I remember in 97, there was a lot, late 97, there was concern that, you know, this was going nowhere. And I know that, that John Hume was frustrated and even George Mitchell was frustrated. And I looked at some notes that I'd had with, that I had given in a memo to Senator Kennedy. And I said, you know, there's concern that the unionists aren't engaging and they will say what they don't want, but they won't say what they will want. And so it, it's very much like a lot of what has been discussed, you know, in recent days. So I think there was a constant effort on the U.S. to, you know, encourage and cheerlead. And we were always very mindful. Mm -hmm. Senator is always very mindful of how unionists had a, a natural inclination to be suspicious of Irish America. Um, I think sometimes that was, you know, overblown. Um, but he was always very careful to, in fact, he only went after Mo Molum and others said that he could be helpful. You know, I think that the main role was to do no harm, yeah. but it really did go down to that wire. And you've some great descriptions, David Donahue, of Mo Molum walking around without her shoes on, without her wig on, in the, in the chaos of castle buildings that night. But talk to me about the issues that nearly did derail the process. Prisoners from the point of view of Sinn Féin, and of course we saw Geoffrey Donaldson walk away from the Ulster Unionists that morning. Exactly, Onya. So um, um, an effort was made by the unions to establish a clear link between uh, ministers taking office in, in the new executive and, and uh, decommissioning. Um, that was never likely to be 
part of an agreement because, frankly, we have been over the ground so often on decommissioning and uh, the only co common uh, position one could reach was that decommissioning would be a voluntary process by those who had the weapons and that they would do so in the context of implementation of the wider agreement. There was no likelihood of getting an advance on that or change in that position. So the unionist move at the last moment uh, was never going to end up in the agreement being changed. However, it did end up in a letter of comfort, as it were, being given by the British Prime Minister to, the, to David Trimble, which uh, I think was valuable for him at that moment in terms of his own mm -hmm. party management. So that was certainly one big issue that the, the, the link between or a, an attempted link between decommissioning of weapons and taking office in the executive that was a tricky one there were others as well uh, the prisoner issues i think they reached they were clarified in 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 private sessions between uh, the Taoiseach and the prime minister at the time i mean they were you know, of, of extreme importance for Sinn Féin, and we all knew that. Uh, and it ultimately came down to what was, uh, what the market could bear, what was a reasonable compromise between what Sinn Féin would have liked and what the unions felt they could accept. So, uh, you know, most people feel that it was a reasonable, indeed courageous uh, uh, compromise at the end of the day. And so the deal was done and the referendum was passed uh, and... The relationship between Ireland and America is, you know, is one that people here still value hugely. But you went on to set up Trina Vargo, the US-Ireland alliance, because you believe this is something we need to work at. You know, we can't just rest on the laurels of the Good Friday Agreement. Tell me more about that. Well, I think if you if you look at the way things were in 1995 in, in a variety of ways, um, you had people who were in senior leadership positions in the US Congress who were no longer around. They are either deceased or aging or retiring. If you look at if, if you look at the hill right now, I mean Joe Biden may be the last uh, sort of um Irish American president who wears it on his sleeve if you will. There was that generation of Ted Kennedy and Pat Moynihan and Tip O'Neill and Ronald Reagan even who had an interest in in their ancestry. In those days when we were working on this issue, 44 million Americans claimed Irish heritage. Today that number is only 34 million. Demographics are changing dramatically in the United States. And I am of the firm belief that not nearly enough uh, resources and attention is being given to this issue in a way that is going to be necessary if we're gonna be able to sustain these ties for future generations. So we we go about it in a few different ways, probably most, most notably is our George J. Mitchell Scholarship Program. And there's a competition in the United States every year to find the best and brightest future leaders of this country to send them to the island for a year of graduate study and can very much connect them mm -hmm. to that island. Uh, these are people who are otherwise would be going to, you know, Oxford and Cambridge. And I think you have to put a lot of effort and resources into building that future, or it's, it simply won't be there. I mean, demographics just dictate that it won't be there in 10, 20 years time. Uh, yes, and on that one, David Donahue, I, you've been nodding your head. Do you agree? I do. In fact, I was struck by uh, um, what Trina was saying about, you know, demographic changes, um, um, uh, political changes uh, on her side of the Atlantic. But in the same way, we've seen a lot of changes. It's inevitable, but we, we've seen a lot of changes on this side of the Atlantic. Um, 
the, the generation of politicians and uh, officials on the British government side who negotiated the Good Friday Agreement has, has moved on or has passed on. And frankly, one doesn't see the same degree of commitment uh, in more recent British governments as we had from Tony Blair and his officials then. So that, that was a kind of a uniquely promising state of affairs. The level of interest, of course, uh, on, in, in Ireland remains very high, but also, you know, yeah. other issues have taken over. Brexit has dominated attention for the last few years. So, but I think on the demographics, we've also seen changes within Northern Ireland. There are now issues coming onto the political agenda there, which would have been unheard of um, in, in 1998. I'm not talking about Brexit. I'm talking about issues like, you know, climate change, uh, sustainability. There, there's a, yeah. a, a younger generation in Northern Ireland who are moving beyond the issues of identity. So there are many changes really on, on this side of the Atlantic as well. And then 25 years on, I mean, you know, a lot, a lot of, you know, there is an awful lot to celebrate about what happened 25 years ago, Trina Vargo. On the other hand, there's a lot, you know, Stormont hasn't been working nearly as well as long as it has been working. We still have, you know, the peace walls, so-called, that divide communities. We see the bonfires, you know, burning bigger and higher and as sectarian as ever. And there are a lot of questions about, if you like, a structural built-in division between Sinn Féin and the DUP at Stormont. So, as you look at the Good Friday Agreement now, do you think it's a transitional agreement on the way to some other kind of future? Does it need reworking or do you pull a thread of it at your peril? Um, I, I think it is a step along the way. I think Senator Mitchell would have even said that on, on many occasions. You know, we are all these years on. I do think it is important to note People aren't killing each other every day in Northern Ireland the way they were in those days. You go back and forth across the border. Um, we did a, a cycle this year where we would cycle back and forth across the border. It's seamless. You barely know when you're in, in one jurisdiction or the other. All those things are positive. You have a generation of young people who don't really remember or, or weren't, you know, or not cognizant of what went on in the trouble. So I don't think we should lose sight of the huge accomplishment that the Good Friday Agreement is. But when I hear people, and I also hope you know, that the DUP will, just from their own their own objectives, seize what's happened here with Windsor. Because if I were them, I would, If and my argument is I want to retain part of, you know, stay part of the United Kingdom. My best argument to, is that Northern Ireland is a prosperous place. So why would you want to leave? So I'm a little confused. Frankly, I can't get my head around why they're mm -hmm. not um, taking great advantage of this opportunity with Brexit. But also I've I've seen some of the things that Naomi Long has said about, you know, the structures. And we, we need to get back into Stormont. I hope Jeffrey will bring the DUP back into Stormont because it's in their own best interest. But you do not want a continual, you, you do not want everything to remain sectarian into the future when, as David noted, younger people are interested in education and the healthcare system and the climate. And none of those things are sectarian by nature. So I, I hope there is there, there has to be scope to advance things and tweak things in a way that allows for a functioning government in Northern Ireland. And in terms of, you know, negotiating the next 25 years, when you look around, David Donoghue, do you, you know, who, who's the new John Hume? Who, 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 where, you know, where's the future coming from? Where, where are the answers coming from? Well, it would probably be tricky if I were to name people straight off, but let's just say, Anya, I do see uh, younger politicians uh, uh, 
on the, the Northern Ireland landscape in whom I would have great confidence for, for, for the future. Let me just say that I'm personally a bit cautious, uh, maybe if, having been through the entire process which led to the Good Friday Agreement, I feel the moment hasn't yet come to um, to, to, to go back to the drawing boards where, I mean, by the way, Trina's not suggesting that, but others, there's a sort of wider debate mm-hmm. these days about uh, whether it, it's a good idea to have, um, um, you know, identity projects kind of institutionalised. I personally am one of the more conservative people within my own group of, of friends and colleagues. Uh, others think, well, no, we have to be pragmatic about it and be ready to go back. I, I think myself that a review is what one could contemplate as opposed to a fundamental rewriting of the agreement. And there is provision for uh, a review within the terms of the agreement. That would imply tweaking rather than a fundamental change in the institutions we, we set up. But that's my view now. Maybe in five years' time, if I see this famous 20% um, of the other vote, if I see that increasing significantly, maybe I, I might have to revisit that. But for the moment, I, I personally think we should hold on to the institutions we set up in, in 1998. And I have a final question for, for each of you now, and I know you, you've both spent your lives being very diplomatic, very careful with your words, but you're allowed to, to take things personally sometimes. You're allowed to get emotional sometimes. So this anniversary, personally, start with you, Trina. What does it mean to you personally? Um, it, personally, I'm delighted with what happened back then and where we are now. I'm personally frustrated with how slow progress has always been and how slow people are to consider everything we need to do to sustain these relationships for the future. So I'm just the sort of person that is never fast enough for me. And, and that's how I feel about it. David? Well, I have a lot of uh, memories, obviously, on your, of um, this week or shortly, Easter week from 1998. And, and uh, they're now quite vivid because of all the, the attention with the anniversary. Yes, I have a, a vague feeling of disappointment that we weren't able to achieve more. Um, you know, the high hopes that were invested in the agreement in 1998 haven't really been realised, uh, you know, on the scale that I imagined. Um, I can see the weaknesses in the agreement more clearly now. Um, but on the other hand, I think Trina said a moment ago, people's lives are not being lost anymore. They're, nobody, you know, they, 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 it has brought lasting peace. And so if I, if I try to sum up my feeling, it's one of maybe quiet satisfaction and pride that we did achieve something which was good for the island, um, but tempered with a slight feeling of frustration that we don't have more to show for it uh, 25 years later. In particular, sectarianism still exists at a local level and working class loyalism, for example, has, has felt excluded. So not everybody has benefited. And of course, we've had long periods of of um, stagnation, which yeah. haven't helped the agreement. So all these these reservations are on my mind as much as the as the pride and satisfaction of having been there 25 years ago. And despite that vague sense of disappointment that you feel, and despite that 
sense of frustration that, that you feel, Trina. I think many people who've watched and many people who be aware of what you've both done over the years will feel an enormous debt of gratitude to each of you and to all of the others um, who brought this about, because that's what is really important. I think it's the point to keep hammering on to people who've been born, you know, since 1998 and don't have much memory of it. It's the fact that people aren't dying in their hundreds and thousands anymore. It's the fact that that barbarity is over. And for all the work you put into all of that, so many people on this island are so very grateful. And we're also very grateful that you joined us today. And thank you very much indeed. It's been a thank pleasure you. to talk to you. So that was Trina Vargo, the president of the Irish-US Alliance, also author of Shenanigans, and former ambassador David Donoghue, and author of One Good Day. So we're very grateful to them and to all of our guests who joined us on this series of three Your Politics specials to mark the anniversary of the Good Friday Agreement. All three discussions up online to watch and listen and subscribe as you will. And to all of our guests, as I say, thank you. Goodbye for now.